Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. There is minimal data evaluating the safety of antibiotic discontinuation in patients with hematologic malignancies with fever and ongoing neutropenia. Based on current practice guidelines, this has the potential to result in broad spectrum antibiotic exposure for weeks, regardless of clinical course or identification of infection. Prolonged antimicrobial therapy is a known risk factor for the development of multidrug resistant organisms and C. diff. Today, my pharmacist colleague, Dr. Divya Kandekar, discusses key clinical trials that support early antibiotic discontinuation in patients with hematologic malignancies and allogeneic bone marrow transplant who have ongoing febrile neutropenia. So I recently had the opportunity to attend a statewide pharmacy conference and attended this session on supportive care in oncology, which also talked about management of febrile neutropenia. At the end, there was a question for the audience on the appropriate duration of antibiotic treatment in, this, in these patient population. And I realized that the audience, uh, no one in the audience actually, or the speakers themselves had any clear recommendations. Stopping antibiotics in a cancer patient who has you know, rec recently received chemotherapy and is neutropenic and is febrile can be, in can be intimidating for a lot of oncology practitioners. On one hand, there are the dangers of the patient having an untreated infection. And on the other, there are the side effects of long-term broad spectrum antibiotics. With increasing interest in antimicrobial stewardship over the past decade, Research is being done to see if we could apply the same principles of stewardship in our patients with febrile neutropenia. My presentation today will hopefully help the audience to navigate through some of these research findings and uh, apply it to their practice. So to start off, I will be describing the etiology of febrile neutropenia in patients with hematological malignancies. I will be summarizing guideline-based recommendations for antibiotic discontinuation, and then lastly, discuss primary literature supporting early antibiotic discontinuation in patients with febrile neutropenia. So neutropenic fever, as the name suggests, uh, is a fever that occurs in a patient with neutropenia or low neutrophil count. The fever component is described as a single temperature of greater than 38 degrees Celsius orally or 38 degrees Celsius orally over one hour. The neutropenia component is defined as a neutrophil count of less than 500 or a count of less than 1000 that is predicted to decline to less than 500 over the next 48 hours. And this definition is by the NCCN guidelines. So as we all know, neutropenic fever is a common complication of cancer chemotherapy. So to put things in perspective, um, Febrile neutropenia can occur in about 10 to 50% in patients with solid tumors and in about 80% in patients with hematological malignancies. And this is without antibiotic prophylaxis. Even with antibiotic prophylaxis, febrile neutropenia is the reason for 10 to 15% of all inpatient admissions for cancer. The common reasons for why patients develop a neutropenic fever include infection, which includes either bacterial, viral, or, fun or fungal infections, the malignancy itself. So, um, 
blood cancers like lymphoma and leukemias and solid tumors like renal cell carcinomas produce pyrogens which affect the normal functioning of the hypothalamus and causes what we call, call a malignant fever. Some other reasons include drug fevers caused by chemotherapy and antibiotics and other causes such as inflammation from surgery, DVT-PEs, et cetera. So I'll be talking about the infectious causes and treatments for neutropenic fever today. So before I dive into the treatment and empiric antibiotic selection, I just wanted to like, let you know that my topic today is going to focus on the treatment part and not uh, prophylaxis uh, for neutropenic fever. That in itself is a big topic and there are specific NCCN IDSA recommendations for prophylaxis. Just to give you a gist of things, the NCCN IDSA both recommend bacterial prophylaxis with fluoroquinolones, antifungal prophylaxis with oral azoles or parenteral echinocandins, and then antiviral prophylaxis in select patients as well. Going into our treatment, so how do we treat patients or how do we select the correct antibiotic uh, in these patients? And there's a lot of factors that play into this. The first one I'm going to talk about is the baseline risk of the patient having infectious complications. So the NCCN guideline recommends that all patients who have cancer and are going to start chemotherapy be, uh, you know, have sh they should have this initial assessment uh, for, you know, risk for infection, and that helps us categorize patients into either low risk or high risk of infections. So our low risk patients are typically those with an outpatient status who are clinically stable, who have a good performance status, a mass score of greater than 21, and usually their neutropenia has a short duration and it's non-severe. They also usually do not have renal hepatic insufficiency. On the other hand, our high-risk patients usually have inpatient status when we see them are clinically unstable and have uncontrolled or progressive cancer. <coughs> Their mass scores are less than 21. A lot of these patients have undergone allogeneic uh, hematopoietic cells, uh, cell transplantation, amongst other things. So research has shown that patients who are in this high-risk category uh, benefit more if they are in an inpatient set setting and are treated with IV antibiotics and they have better outcomes as a result. So the guidelines do recommend that patients who are high-risk be treated on an inpatient basis. The second thing I'm going to talk about in the in is, is the baseline infectious syndrome, and that helps us determine the causative agents or bacteria involved as well. So currently, our most common organisms that cause febrile neutropenia are our gram positives. To give you a historic perspective on things, these patterns of antibiotics have changed significantly over the past few decades. So in the early 1950s to 60s, I can say when the development of cytotoxic agents was happening, gram-negative organisms were more common. In the 1980s and 90s, there was an increased use of indwelling catheters and lines, which caused an increase in our gram-positive uh, organisms. Currently, the, the trend is you know, going back to gram-negative organisms, uh, organisms because we, are, we have good line hygiene practices. We are using uh, prophylaxis in a lot of these patients. But still, I would say gram-positives are still our most common bacteria. Out of, the, uh, out of these, the, our, our coagulase-negative staph or staph epidermidis, for example, uh, is the most common with 50% of our gram-positive uh, bacteria being uh, staph epidermidis. The second most common bacteria include gram-negatives uh, that include our enterobacteriaceae like E. coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, among other things. Currently, anaerobes, fungi, and polymicrobial infections are 
a little infrequent, but we have seen an increase in poly polymicrobial infections in the past few years. So out of these, our gram negatives and our gram positive agents that are more resistant, like MRSA, VRE, and viridins group streptococci, are, are bugs that cause more serious infections. I would like to point out Pseudomonas specifically, because even though the prevalence of the bacteria is less to about eight to 10%, uh, it's notorious for, you know, historically for causing more of our serious infections, sepsis, and even death. And that is the reason the NCCN guidelines recommend that all our patients who have febrile neutropenia be started on an IV broad spectrum monotherapy antibiotic with anti-pseudomonal activity. We could further add on vancomycin if uh, the patient has clinically suspe suspected catheter-associated infection, known colonization or a history with MRSA, signs of sepsis, skin and soft tissue infections, or healthcare-associated pneumonia. We could further add on anaerobic coverage if there is an evidence of uh, a perianal or perirectal infection, presence of necrotizing gingivitis, or potential intra-abdominal infection uh, like neutropenic colitis. Some other factors include recent antimicrobial exposure, which includes our agents that we use for both treatment and prophylaxis, and we usually take into account uh, the agents that we have used in the past one year. Uh, local antibiograms tell us uh, about the resistance patterns at the institution, so we usually devise our therapy based off that, and then uh, other medical comorbidities that the patient might have. Unfortunately, we are seeing the answer here, but my first question was, which of the following is the most commonly isolated organism in febrile neutropenia. Just for the people who might be uh, you know, listening to the podcast later, I will just read out the options. So option A was Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Uh, second was Staphylococcus epidermidis. Uh, Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus are, is option C, and Aspergillus fumigatus option D. And uh, for our next questions, and just for our listeners here, you can either go on to the Poll Everywhere app uh, or log on from your desktop to pollev.com, MayoRx, and text your responses to uh, 22333 if you're responding via text to MayoRx. So I won't spend any more time because we see the answer here, but I can go over why the other options are incorrect. So Pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, as we know, uh, is, is one of our agents that causes you know, more like uh, serious infections, but it is not our most common agent that causes febrile neutropenia. Methicillin-resistant staph aureus, again, similar concept, more virulent, causes more serious infections, but not the most common. And then aspergillus is our fungus, which uh, can happen in our high-risk patients, but again, are not our most common. So staph epidermidis, option B is the correct answer. All right, so now that we have talked about how and when to start antibiotics in a patient, let's talk about discontinuation. So consider this patient who has currently finished chemotherapy or seven days of chemotherapy with a cytotoxic chemotherapy agent and uh, the neutrophil count starts going down. Just as the patient is about to hit their nadir or you know, the point of lowest neutrophil count, the patient also develops a fever. The team decides to start empiric antibiotics in this patient. As a result, the fever resolves, uh, their neutrophil count resolves, and the team decides to stop empiric antibiotics. So this picture is pretty straightforward. Now consider another patient who also finishes chemotherapy and develops a fever. The team does decide to start empiric antibiotics. But for this patient, the fever and the neutrophil count are still ongoing, or the neutrophil count is depressed. So at this point, the team is maybe not very comfortable discontinuing the antibiotics. 
And in the second situation, the fever resolves, but the neutrophil count is still less. And again, the team is a little unsure on what to do with the patient's antibiotics. So this picture of persistent neutropenia is uh, common in our patients who are older in age, have advanced disease, have low baseline blood counts, and are on myelosuppressive regimens like induction chemo and stem cell transplant. Unfortunately, because of this, the patients end up being on extended broad spectrum antibiotics for a long period of time, which uh, has its side effects that include secondary infections like C. diff, which we are seeing a lot in the hospital now, uh, toxicities like acute kidney injury, obviously based off what agent you're using, development of resistance, and then there is some new evidence uh, about this concept of disruption of the patient's microbiome uh, and uh, causing increased infectious complications after reinduction chemotherapy. So if the patient comes in again for a reinduction, they might have more severe infections and more harder to treat infections. And then of course, increased drug costs from the antibiotics itself. So let's see what the guidelines have to tell us about antibiotic discontinuation now. One thing that is common amongst all the guidelines is that they recommend to treat all documented infection per, infections per individual disease guidelines. So if the patient has a suspicion for a pneumonia or a community acquired pneumonia, you would typically treat them for five days. If it's a more serious uh, infection like a staph bacteremia, it would go up to four weeks, for example. Uh, one other recommendation is continue antibiotics in patients that are febrile and clinically unstable because obviously you don't want to stop antibiotics in a patient who is clinically unstable and deteriorating. So the first guidelines we're gonna talk about are the IDSA guidelines from 2020, uh, 2010, which was the most recent update. And these guidelines recommend to continue broad spectrum IV antibiotic use until the patient's ANC has fully recovered. It does mention fluoroquinolone uh, prophylaxis in persistently neutropenic patients after completing antibiotics, but this is a weak class B3 recommendation in the guidelines. Now let's talk about the NCCN guidelines. The most recent update was in 2021. Uh, so for patients with a fever of unknown origin, uh, the guideline recommends that uh, once the ANC count is greater than 500, it would be okay to discontinue therapy. If the count is less than 500, we can potentially think about discontinuation if the ANC count is likely to improve over the next few days. Prophylaxis may be considered in prolonged neutropenia was one other recommendation, but they don't provide any recommendations on the duration or the kind of agents. And so the final recommendation is to continue current regimen until the neutropenia is fully resolved. If the patient is clinically stable but persistently febrile, the guidelines actually uh, tell us to broaden coverage to include an, an antifungal agent, uh, further testing and bringing ID on board. And in the end, the duration of therapy from whatever we get out of all this uh, totally depends upon the patient's clinical course. So this brings us to our next audience participation question. So this is a case which uh, you can apply to to the next question. So patient AJ is a 67 year old male who recently completed induction chemotherapy for AML. During his hospital stay, he developed neutropenic fever and was started on empiric uh, cefepime and vancomycin. He's now clinically stable and imaging and cultures have been unremarkable. On day four of antibiotics, the medical team asks you for a recommendation on how long the patient should be treated with the current antibiotic regimen. And you can text your answers to the link above. Uh, so the question is based on recommendations in the IDSA and NCCN guidelines. So we're just looking at these two guidelines. How will you treat this patient? 
Option A is continue to treat the patient for an additional day for a total of five days of empiric antibiotics. Option B, discontinue empiric antibiotics if the patient is afebrile for greater than 24 hours. C, discontinue empiric antibiotics if the patient is afebrile and his ANC count has increased to 700. Option D, de-escalate therapy to a prophylactic dose of antibiotics even if the patient is persistently febrile. So option C is the correct answer. So discontinue empiric antibiotics if the patient is afebrile and his ANC increases to 700. So I do agree with uh, most everyone in the audience. So option A, five days of total empiric antibiotics. So this is just a number I put in, but if a patient had, you know, a suspected or documented, say, you know, cap or urinary tract infection, you obviously want to look at the specific infectious disease guidelines and go based off that. Uh, for discontinuing empiric antibiotics, so the guidelines actually don't provide any recommendation on discontinuation. So this greater than 24 is the incorrect answer. And then there's some evidence or the guidelines do mention, you know, de-escalating to a prophylactic dose, and that's a weak recommendation. But this patient, as I'm saying here, is persistently febrile. And for these patients, you want to continue antibiotics on them. All right, so now that we have talked about uh, the guidelines, let's uh, go into some of the primary literature. Uh, first, talking about the trial that might have set our current practice dogmas and something that we still follow to this age. So this trial by Pizza and colleagues was a trial from 1979, which uh, included patients between the age of one to 33 years uh, with leukemias or solid tumors and high risk of neutropenia. They were all started on an antibiotic regimen of keflin, gentamicin, and, and carbenazone, also called KCG, for fever of unknown origin. So out of the total patients they included, 33 patients became afebrile. And 17 of these discontinued antibiotics. The trial and the results described that out of these 17, 10 had no sequelae, and seven had sequelae in about two days, which included five documented infections, and two, uh, two of which were fatal. So based on this, the, the trial authors concluded that uh, for patients who became, you know, who become afebrile after starting empiric antibiotic therapy, there's, they, they might still benefit from extended use of broad spectrum antibiotics if the neutropenia is ongoing. But as we can see, the trial had a lot of shortcomings, including a sample size, you know, that was really small of 17 patients. And also the fact that this was a trial from 1979 where the practices were different, the patterns of bacteria were different. So we can't absolutely say for sure if this can be applied to current practice. The second trial was a more recent trial from 2014 by Nicole and colleagues, which included patients with high-risk AML and a neutropenia that lasted for 30 days. Uh, patients were started on empiric antibiotics and then discontinued, and this cohort was uh, included a total of seven patients, so even smaller than the past trial we looked at. Out of these seven, four remained afebrile after discontinuing antibiotics, and three had recurrent fevers, two of which had bacteremias, and one was admitted to the ICU with septic shock. So on the grounds that uh, this was actually harmful for the patients and even unethical, the, st the study was terminated. Some shortcomings of the trial, which are obvious here, is the, is the really small sample size, which doesn't really allow us to make any statistically proven or evident um, recommendations. In the discussion, the, the authors do mention that 
this trial only included patients with high-risk AML, none of which who were de-escalated to a prophylactic regimen, and that may be the reason for why patients continued to be febrile. So they do, did recommend that in this cohort of patients, it would have been better if patients would have been de-escalated to a prophylactic regimen. So now that we know that the evidence behind or the evidence against discontinuation of antibiotics is quite uh, weak, let's talk about the trials and the guidelines that do support de-escalation. So our ESL-4 guidelines uh, have specific recommendations for patients with fever of unknown origin. The first thing they recommend is to de-escalate um, any sort of aminoglycosides the patient is on, fluoro fluoroquinolones, um, and carbapenems, and also gram-positive agents to a simpler regimen that usually consists of, uh, consists of cefepime and zosin. In the second step, they ask for us to like evaluate the patient's fever on a daily basis and consider stopping the uh, anti empiric antibiotics at 72 hours if the patient has been afebrile for greater than 48 hours. Going into the evidence, so this the ESL-4 guidelines after they were published in 2014, they caused a lot of new research uh, you know, interest in this area, and a lot of trials after that were based around this uh, concept. So the first study, the How Long study from 2017, included adults with uh, hematologic malignancies or HCT, uh, where you know, the empiric treatment was withdrawn after 72 hours of apyrexia. In the control group, empiric antibiotic treatment was discontinued uh, after neutrophil recovery, so an ANC of greater than 500. And in the test group, it was regardless of neutrophil recovery. All patients were on anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam drugs as monotherapy or a combination with aminoglycosides, fluoroquinolones, or a glycopeptide. The primary endpoint of the study was number of empiric antibiotic treatment free days in 28 days, in the first 28 days after initiation of the antibiotics, which was about 16 uh, days in the control group and 13 days in the test group, which reduced you know, the total number of days by about two to 2.5. And this was a statistically significant difference. The secondary endpoints, which were all-cause mortality and the number of days with fever, there was no difference between the groups found. And that authors did mention that no patients died after withdrawal despite persistent neutropenia in some of them. The second trial is the antibiostop trial from 2018, which included adults with malignant heme disease and chemo-induced fever of unknown origin. Uh, in these patients, uh, prophylaxis was uh, provided, so all patients were on acyclovir for uh, antiviral prophylaxis. Patients who had undergone HCT were on prophylaxis with amoxicillin and fluconazole, and patients with AML were on prophylaxis with posaconazole. The test group included 45 patients where it was stopped after 48 hours of apyrexia, and in the control group, therapy was stopped after five days, whether or not they had uh, a fever or had low neutrophil counts. Zosin was the most common uh, agent used, and specifically for catheter-associated and skin soft tissue infections, vancomycin was added in addition to zosin, and patients who had septic shock, there was an aminoglycoside, imipenem, or vancomycin added. Our composite endpoint, which was the primary endpoint, uh, was a composite of in-hospital mortality, ICU admission, and relapse of infection within 48 hours. So the com composite endpoint was similar between both groups. And if you look at the individual components as well, they all were similar between groups. So in general, the trial did not show any difference between the test and control arms. 
So looking at some of the strengths and limitations of the trial, so the how long trial was I multi, was a multi-center. It was a phase four trial, so real world, it was randomized. Uh, and it did show a reduction this eat free days. Some limitations being that uh, reduced eat free days is we can call it a sur surrogate endpoint actually. So it didn't have you know hospital in hospital mortality or rate of infections as a prime as the primary endpoint. And also it had very few uh, stem cell transplant patients, which is usually our pretty high risk population. Our anti-biostop trial uh, was also good in terms of representing a very high-risk population. It did use standard of practice prophylaxis uh, as you know, the agents that we used, and this is something that we follow today in practice, so it was good to see if the outcomes were different if patients were in prophylaxis. Limitations included, uh, the trial was also a small non-randomized study and lacked power. Uh, a composite outcome always you know, overestimates or could overestimate difference between the groups. So that's something we have to keep in mind. And then there were some protocol violations where patients in the control group continued to be on antibiotics for longer than they were supposed to. So putting both the trial results in context, the trials, both of them told us that it is safe to discontinue antibiotics regardless of neutrophil recovery. This could be applicable to patients with on prophylaxis or without prophylaxis. And uh, one thing to mention is that the number of uh, stem cell transplant patients is was pretty low in both of these trials. So our results will be applicable to our hematologic malignancy population, but, but not as much to our stem cell transplant population. So then looking at a more recent trial, uh, this trial was uh, bigger in the scheme of things and also uh, had a more detailed protocol. And it studied the impact of the ESL-4 guidelines uh, in heme malignancies. So adults uh, were admitted for induction or consolidation chemo or HCT were included in the trial, and they had uh, either newly diagnosed or relapsed refractory AML as well. So the protocol was implemented uh, in late of January, and that defined our uh, you know, control and test groups. So patients who were enrolled in the trial before that, so November 2011 to 20, Jan of 2017 was our control group. And then ESOL4 group included patients who were enrolled from 2017 to 2021. So just going over the protocol that they use in these patients. So for escalation, in both groups, empiric antibiotic therapy treatment considered, uh, consisted of meropenem and amikacin. If there were no MDR or multidrug resistance strains identified, amikacin was discontinued after five days in the control group and three days in the ESOL4 group. Vancomycin could be empirically added uh, when the fever persisted, you know, after 48 to 72 hours of treatment in the control group. And uh, whereas like comparatively uh, in the ESL4 group, it could only be added if the patient was hemodynamically unstable, uh, had, you know, uh, positive cultures of gram-positive bacteria and a suspicion for catheter or skin and soft tissue infections. For de-escalation, uh, and empiric antibiotic treatment was continued until neutrophil recovery in the control group. And um, it was discontinued once the patient was uh, afebrile for greater than 48 hours, irrespective of neutrophil recovery in the ESL4 group, which is what the ESL4 guidelines also told us. In terms of our baseline characteristics, you can see the patients having a different, you know, uh, a wide array of cancers, including AML, multiple myeloma, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma being our top three cancer types. 
And uh, these patients had, you know, were post-intensive chemotherapy and quite a lot of them to 28% and 27% had received uh, autologous and allogeneic uh, hematopoietic cells, uh, stem cell transplant respectively. So looking at our outcomes, so the incidence of febrile neutropenia of microbiologically documented infections of bacteremias and recurrent fevers was higher in the ESL4 group as compared to the control group. And this difference was statistically significant. However, this did not you know, lead into or did not cause an increase in some of our more serious um, outcomes like septic shock, infectious uh, related ICU admissions and mortality. Uh, which was similar between groups. And in fact, our oral mortality was lower in the ESL4 group. Septic shock, infectious-related ICU admissions, and infection-related mortality were our primary outcomes for the trial. In terms of our secondary outcomes, uh, days of uh, antibiotic therapy were decreased in our ESL4 group, and the difference was statistically significant again, so uh, caused a reduction of two days approximately. Uh, the total antibiotic exposure was also reduced, and that difference was also statistically significant. So outcomes that were worse in the ESL group uh, in this trial included higher rates of febrile neutropenia, higher microbiological documented infections, bacteremias, and recurrent fevers. Uh, the outcomes are equal in both groups in terms of severe sepsis, septic shock, infection-related ICU admissions, and bacterial cultures uh, having, you know, being more prevalent. And the outcomes were better in terms of overall mortality, days on antibiotic treatment, and total antibiotic exposure. One thing the authors did mention is the reason for the patients having these recurrent infections could be because none of the patients went back to being on prophylactic regimens after um, empiric treatments were discontinued. So in terms of how we can apply it to our patient population, uh, the trial also mentioned that it's clinically safe to discontinue antibiotics regardless of neutrophil recovery, and this now can be applied to both our hematological malignancies as well as our patients who underwent stem cell transplantation. And recurrence of fever is high if antibiotics are not de-escalated to prophylaxis. Uh, as we saw in the trial, there was about a 50% uh, recurrence uh, of fever in both arms. So then going into a trial that did study de-escalation, and this was our most recent trial from 2022. Um, so this trial included adults on high-intensity induction chemo for newly diagnosed or relapsed refractory AML. This had a similar uh, design as the past trial as we discussed, you know, the quasi-experimental trial design. And patients who were enrolled in the trial from 2015 to 2017 before the protocol was implemented had uh, an N of 40 and the patients who were uh, included in the trial after protocol implementation or the intervention group, the number of patients were about 53. So talking about de-escalation protocol a little bit, because this was slightly different from the past trial. So the protocol recommended that patients who had an initial presentation of febrile neutropenia and AML post-chemo first be started on broad-spectrum IV antibiotics, but then at day five of treatment, uh, all of the patients should be evaluated for a low suspicion of infection, suspected infection, or documented infection. For suspected and documented infection, the trial did mention, you know, treating per treatment guidelines and then de-escalating, and I'll talk about the de-escalation protocol a little bit. But for patients with low suspicion of fever, once the patients were, uh, you know, clinically stable and afebrile for 48 hours, uh, the trial asks us to go into the de-escalation protocol. 
So what the de-escalation protocol tells us is that for patients who had new AML, it was okay to discontinue empiric antibiotic treatment right away, like after the uh, fever and uh, having gone for like 48 hours. For relapsed and refractory AML, uh, they recommended that uh, the, all patients would be like de-escalated to a regimen of levofloxacin 500 daily. The reason why they defined this as, you know, like new AML, AML versus uh, relapsed refractory AML is that goes back to uh, our initial discussion on patients, you know, who have received chemotherapy in the past who are now relapsed or refractory have a greater chance of being exposed to antibiotics in the past. They have this altered uh, microbiome in the body, which might lead to you know, more severe infections in the future. So for these specific patients, it's, it's necessary to put them on some sort of regimen, and it's a levofloxacin in this case. All our baseline characteristics were balanced. And in terms of your infection-related characteristics, higher number of patients had suspected infection uh, in the historical arm versus the interventional arm, but all the other uh, baseline characteristics were matched. So looking into our uh, infection and treatment-related endpoints, our primary endpoint of development of suspected documented infection was equal between both groups, as well as our outcomes of mortality at 30 days, hospital length of stay. As you can see, the incidence of seed of infections was less in the interventional group, which was statistically significant, as well as uh, the number of patients who were de-escalated off antibiotic therapy and number of days, uh, you know, of uh, total anti-pseudomonal days of therapy, which was less in the interventional group as well. So the strengths of the trial definitely, it included a, a patient population, which was pretty high risk and typically representative of the AML patient. Uh, the detailed de-escalation protocol actually helped us classify patient and patients into this uh, baseline risk of infection, and uh, patients were discontinued, uh, de-escalated off antibiotics versus discontinued if they had previous antibiotic exposure. The trial reported clinical outcomes and uh, the incidence of C. diff infections, which uh, is a common problem now, and the baseline characteristics were well matched. In terms of limitations, the de-escalation protocol was, or the recommendation was provided by a pharmacist, but the final decision was based off the, you know, the, the physician involved. So there could have been some differences there. There was about 30% non-compliance in the control group and patients ended up being on IV antibiotics for longer. And then because uh, this wasn't a very long or extended duration of uh, like follow-up, we could not maybe, or the trial could not capture the true incidence of drug resistance. So from this, uh, it is safe to conclude that uh, it's okay to discontinue antibiotics regardless of neutrophil recovery, something that we've seen in the past trials as well. And this can be applied to our AML patients who are uh, high risk of infection. Um, the trial did recommend de-escalating antibiotics to prophylaxis and relapsed or refractory AML. And we did see a decreased incidence of uh, C. diff infections in the trial. So that brings us to our final audience participation question. So patient AJ uh, is a 67-year-old male with newly diagnosed AML who recently completed induction chemotherapy with a 7 plus 3 regimen. Cultures and imaging are unremarkable throughout the following timeline. So on day one, uh, the patient completed induction chemotherapy. On day three, patient developed a fever and the ANC count at that time was 78. Uh, the team decided to start cefepime and vancomycin. 
on day six, so that's about three days after uh, the fever happened and uh, antibiotics were started, the patient became afebrile and uh, was clinically stable at that point with an ANC of, of 102. And then on day eight, the patient continues to be afebrile and clinically stable with an ANC that has slightly increased to 298. So on the next day, the team asks you for a recommendation on empiric antibiotic discontinuation. A patient continues to be afebrile today and the ANC is now 340, which is increasing. Which of the following options would you choose? So option A, continue current empiric antibiotics as the patient is neutropenic. Option B, continue current antibiotics and add an antifungal as the patient is neutropenic. Option C, stop empiric antibiotics and start fluoroquinolone prophylaxis as the patient is neutropenic. And option D, stop empiric antibiotics since the patient has been afebrile for greater than 48 hours. All right, so just to let you know that there was no, like, no definite answer to this question. So the only option that's completely incorrect is option B. And that's because, uh, you know, even if the patient's neutropenic, the patient is now improving, is clinically stable. So you necessarily don't want to broaden coverage with an with a antifungal agent. So your correct answer would depend on what guidelines you look at. So people still use, we still use your NCCN guidelines. We use the IDSA guidelines. If you go back and refer to them, option A wouldn't be incorrect. So we would continue empiric antibiotics if the patient is neutropenic if you look at those guidelines. But I uh, personally agree with the audience on you know, going up with either option C or D. Uh, this patient uh, is a high-risk patient, so going down to uh, a fluoroquinolone-based regimen as prophylaxis, I think would be appropriate. But also, I did mention that this is a patient with uh, newly diagnosed EML, and as uh, discussed by the last trial, uh, they decided to discontinue uh, empiric antibiotic treatment uh, with a period like greater than 48 hours of patients being afebrile. So if you look at that trial, uh, option D would also be the correct answer. So I would either go with option C or option D, uh, depending on the risks of the patient. So just to summarize everything that we talked about today, so gram-positive bacteria and certain gram-negative bacteria, including Pseudomonas, are the most common organisms that cause febrile neutropenia. And that's the reason we want to have everybody on an anti-pseudomonal agent. ESIL-4 guidelines recommend discontinuation of empiric antibiotics in the patients who are afebrile for 48 hours, irrespective of neutrophil count, just like they're different from what the IDSA and, IDSA and NCCN guidelines tell us. Most of the clinical trials we discussed today suggest that discontinuation of empiric antibiotics in stable afebrile patients is safe irrespective of neutrophil recovery, and that early discontinuation of antibiotics would reduce total antibiotic exposure and decrease the incidence of C. diff infections. I just put uh, this last slide here to help you apply this to your patients. So patients who are on chemotherapy, you would uh, typically see them being on prophylaxis, especially in your high-risk patients. Uh, in, after prophylaxis, even if the patient develops a fever, you stop prophylaxis and start empiric antibiotics. So it's in this 48-hour uh, period after the patient does not have a fever is when you start thinking about de-escalation either to a prophylactic agent or stopping or discontinuing antibiotics altogether. And for de-escalation, you are typically thinking of your patient who has relapsed cancer, uh, a history of recurrent infections, and so on. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds.
Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.